You're busy and you want the best for your kids. We're here to help. This is Hope and Will, a parenting podcast from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. These are historically challenging times to be a parent. In just a few years, parents have navigated a pandemic, quarantining, virtual schooling, outbreak of war overseas, and far too many mass shootings. This is just scratching the surface and the scary curveballs that have been lobbed our way. Even those who've never experienced anxiety before may be filled with worry or nervousness and feeling the effects. While adults often come to understand it as a normal part of life, for kids it can be particularly challenging. The good news is kids can learn to identify and manage anxiety. These skills can help them become more resilient and better able to handle life's ups and downs. Hi, I'm Lynn Smith, and welcome to Hope and Will, a parenting podcast from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, where we share real stories from real families and clinical insight from pediatric specialists, many of whom are parents just like you. On today's episode, we'll be speaking with Jody Baumstein. Jody is a licensed mental health therapist. She's experienced working with lots of kids, teens, and adults in schools, residential, and outpatient settings, and is now developing emotional wellness programming for Children's Healthcare of Atlanta's Strong for Life program. Jody joins me now to help us better understand anxiety in kids and teens so we recognize the signs and learn how to help them cope with it. Jody, thanks for being with me. You know, as a licensed therapist for a very long time, I can imagine these two years that we have all experienced a pandemic and massive anxiety from parents to children. You haven't seen anything like this before. What has it been like? I think a lot of people are just feeling fatigued mm-hmm. and that is going to look different for everybody. But a lot of people are just talking about how is it possible so many things keep happening and do I have the capacity to handle it? So there's a lot of questioning about what am I capable of? Can I handle it? Is there something wrong with me that I am struggling? There's a significant amount of shame around that, that maybe I should be somehow doing this better and I'm failing when the reality is what we're experiencing is not abnormal. So our response to it is actually very normal, but we're not used to that. So we think something's wrong when really it's just unfamiliar. Oh, that's actually good to hear, right? So when we hear this is normal, it's okay to feel this way. I would imagine that helps when it comes to kids. They're like us. They feel anxiety about everything that's going on. And it feels like every day there's a new disaster. So give me a couple of causes that you've seen children experiencing anxiety right now. Oh, there's so many, right? Because even just being a kid in a normal world, there's so many reasons to be anxious. You've got your schooling. So for some kids, there's a lot of anxiety around doing well in school, performing in athletics and other groups. There's the social aspect. Am I going to make friends? Will I be bullied? Will I be accepted? Will I experience peer pressure? Then, of course, there is sibling stuff and stuff that you're dealing with with your family. But on top of that, kids are paying attention. A lot of them have access to social media. They're tuned in so they know what's going on and they have questions about the war in Ukraine and shootings that are happening and the pandemic and climate change even. There are a lot of kids who are really anxious about that and don't even know what questions they have, but know that they feel anxiety about it. So what are some of the conversations that we need to have, especially with these huge, scary topics, mass shootings, 
the pandemic, everything that you've referred to, what do we as parents do to help them through these feelings? Start a conversation because we want to run away from things that feel big and scary. Let's just acknowledge that. (laughs) We as adults even want to do that. However, like you said, kids are being exposed to this. So we really want to start a conversation. But before we jump into it, I think it's helpful to recognize one, we're humans and we have our own feelings. We're not going to become robots and act like nothing's bothering us. It's okay to feel it. We just want to get it in check when we are talking to kids because we know that they're as sponges and they're absorbing everything that we put out there. So just be aware of what you're feeling. Big thing here is we want to start with real open-ended questions. We do this for a number of reasons. One, we don't want to make assumptions. Just because we're anxious about something doesn't mean they are. And two, we don't want to put our own feelings onto them. So instead of saying, hey, are you feeling really nervous about this? Asking them, how are you feeling? Which is really hard for us to do because we so often are looking at things through our own lens and we need to step back and realize that their experience might be different. And the best thing we can do is ask them and then let them guide the conversation take it where they need it to go. It's so interesting that you say that, even back to school, right? Many of us parents may be like, are you nervous starting kindergarten? Instead saying, how do you feel about starting kindergarten? That mindset shift is, I would imagine, really huge. I would also think it's different for ages, you know, two to five, five to eight, and then eight to teen. So how do you know when to have this conversation and how much detail you go into it? Yeah, so I think if we're just talking about anxiety in general, we start young and there's a reason we do that. When we don't talk about feelings, kids don't learn them. This is one of those things that we sometimes forget that we're not born with this language. We're not born with this skill set. And I like to think about it with something like reading. We would never toss a book at a young child and say, hey, read it, and then get frustrated when they can't. We teach them letters, we teach sounds, we take those letters and put them in a small words and then sentences. And we are right there with them, that entire process, right? Mm. But when it comes to our emotions, we have these really unrealistic ideas that we should just be able to name our emotions and express it directly and work through it and cope with it in healthy ways. We have to teach that. And that means starting super young by just naming feelings. So to answer your question, It's going to start young, but it's going to build. So with very young kids, I'm talking even during infancy, we can start naming feelings, which I know sounds weird, but even before they can talk, they are absorbing a lot. So looking at an infant as they're smiling, you look really happy. I notice you're smiling. Or when they're sad, naming that, you're really upset right now. I wonder what it is you need. I'm going to help you figure it out. As they get older, we're helping expand that feelings vocabulary. So how often do we hear young kids say, I'm mad? It's not that they always feel mad. It's that that's often the word that they know. So we use things like these I wonder statements. I hear you saying you're mad. I'm noticing what's going on. I wonder if you're actually feeling frustrated that you can't figure that out. And so you're teaching them a new vocabulary word and you're giving them space to say, yeah, that's right. Or, no, actually, I'm not frustrated. I'm actually feeling really disappointed because you told me earlier you were going to do something and you didn't do it. But either way, you're opening up space for them to talk about those feelings. I'm feeling safe to talk about those feelings. I think that's something that I'm taking away when I hear you say that. It's okay to 
to give them that space. And then they realize that they have the freedom for it. How do we notice whether or not our kids are feeling anxious? What are some of the warning signs? Because they're not going to walk up to you with that vocabulary, mom, I'm feeling anxious or dad, I'm anxious. You're so right. And I love that question because we have to remember behavior is communication. So we have to get really curious about what are they trying to tell us? And that's going to look different for every kid. Some of the big things you might see are the physical complaints, the stomach aches and headaches that of course don't have a known medical cause, but that's often a sign that there might be some anxiety and tension in the body. You might also notice that they're really distracted. Sometimes we want to smack a label on a kid and say, well, they're just really inattentive, but that might not be the case. They might be really consumed by their worries. A teacher might be giving them directions and think that the child is being defiant, actively ignoring what they're saying, or just struggling to focus, but it might be that they're completely consumed by their worries. They're thinking about something that's causing anxiety, and they're not even hearing what you're saying. Another thing that we often see is there might be trouble with sleeping. So even as adults, we know this to be true. We are so exhausted. We lie down and go to sleep and then our brain is just racing and we can't, we can't go to sleep. You might also see changes with their eating habits. Kids might also be tearful. We might think immediately that that's sadness, but sometimes we're so anxious and so overloaded with those emotions that we're just tearful and we don't even know exactly why. Some of these conversations might be really hard for parents to have, not just because they want to avoid it, but because kids can't sometimes hear it. Are there other strategies? Is it play therapy? Are there other ways outside of conversations we can help kids through these really big feelings? 100%. So young kids, great starting point with a lot of this stuff is books. It's something you're doing every day. So the beautiful thing here is it's very familiar. You're not trying to add something in, which can cause more anxiety. But if you're reading together every night, pick up some books that talk about feelings. Just get them used to it. Because again, we want to make it normal. If feelings are something that we don't talk about, or that's only reserved when something has now blown up and it's a big deal, kids learn that feelings are something that should be avoided or something that we should be ashamed of. And that's really the opposite of what we want. We want it to be so normal that it's not a big deal to talk about. So books are a great starting point. Play is a great place because that's the language that kids have. When we're young, that's what we do. That's how we explore the world. It's how we process things is through play. I talk all the time about things I've used in the past. Candyland. If you flip and you have a blue on your card, blue means that you share something that you felt sad about or orange means that you're sharing something you're really proud of or excited about. But the idea is you're incorporating it into things that are not threatening and you're making it really fun. And then of course there are the imaginary play too. So if you've got dolls, you've got puppets, it's a lot easier sometimes to talk about things when it's not about us. Okay, this is actually about the doll or this sock puppet I have. We can talk about things in a much less threatening way. And that creates a foundation for us to name our own feelings later on. How do we know as parents when we need to take it to the next level beyond play and conversations and we need to bring in a professional, possibly even look at medication? I've talked to so many friends with teens with real mental anguish and they need resources and a conversation's not going to do it. When do you know that you need to tap in experts? 
So a couple of things we want to notice here. One, anxiety is normal. We all have it. <laughs> so your, your, your question is really good because it is hard and it's really confusing. Where is this line of what's normal and when do we need help? What I would say is this. We don't wait when there is something physical. We are on it. We go to the doctor. There is a lot of stigma still attached to mental health, and that's what we need to start to work through. And part of that means just being open to going and talking to someone. What is also important is realizing you're not committing to anything. If you go and it's not the right fit, find somebody who is the right fit. Also, if you go and start talking, you don't have to commit to medication or anything like that. It's something you're going to work on with your provider and see if that's the right fit. But in terms of determining when, when is that next level? We're going to look at a couple of things. One, is it impacting the child's functioning? Is it starting to get in the way of their everyday life? Is it becoming so excessive they can't go to school or they can't start projects because they're so scared of failure? They don't even want to begin. Or they can't get through a conversation with you without getting up or fidgeting or just crying. It's affecting their sleep. When it is impacting them on that level, you definitely want to get help. There's no need to suffer. Um, the other thing are just these extreme reactions. So, you know, again, it's normal to have a little bit of anxiety about school. In fact, it's really helpful. For instance, it makes us meet deadlines. If we have a little bit of pep there, then we're going to be motivated to study for tests. However, if they're staying up till three, four in the morning, because they're so worried about getting a perfect grade. That's something that kids really struggle with. And, and there's such a high stakes game when it comes to schools. It's so competitive. How should we as parents address that idea of perfectionism is not reality and still balance it with they have to be so competitive to be able to be successful these days. Oh, that is the million dollar question, isn't it? It's so loaded because there are so many layers to what you're talking about. But what it really comes down to is we all have core beliefs and we have narratives in our head that are going to impact our feelings and our behavior. So, so often we want to look at behavior in isolation. It doesn't happen in isolation though. Our behavior is connected to how we feel and how we think. If kids develop these beliefs that I have to be perfect, well, yeah, they're going to keep going and going. And that goalpost is going to keep moving because we know you never reach a point where you feel like you've done it all. They will keep going until they are so burned out. They don't know what day it is. So what we have to do is really help them understand that. There's this sweet spot in all of this. We can want better for ourselves and know that we're not going to be perfect. We can want to do well and know that that doesn't mean all A's every day and our whole identity is wrapped up in school. Most people are striving for the sweet spot. They're just not entirely sure where it is or even how to name it. But that's often where it comes down to is helping kids change these narratives or these core beliefs that they have about themselves. And sometimes we have this big threat to our sense of self, which is if I don't perform, I'm nothing. If I don't do well, I'm not lovable. And so these things in their mind, they're connected. My performance is tied to my identity or these outcomes are connected to my worth. 
We have to separate them for kids and help them see that that's one piece of you. Your academic performance is one piece of you. This really applies to us as parents too, like you're speaking to me. (laughs) We need to let go of some of these expectations that we have of being a perfect parent. Our own anxieties can then be put on our children. How do we manage that? How do we ensure that we're not taking what makes us anxious and putting it on our kids? We have to be aware of it. That's the hardest part. It's something I say all the time with people I'm working with is the hardest part is recognizing it. But to recognize it, we have to slow down. We are so rushed all the time. And if we are running at full speed ahead through the motions, we are not going to recognize it if it's smacking us in the face. We have to be super intentional about slowing down and checking in. I say all the time, our feelings are clues. We often want to run from our feelings, but they will catch up with us. They will seep out of us no matter what. (laughs) So the best thing we can do is say, huh, what are my feelings trying to tell me? Instead of being scared of them, how can I tune into them and listen? How can I get quiet and pay attention? Sometimes we think anxiety, for instance, when I feel anxiety, I'm doing something wrong. I'm not good enough. How come I can't be like, my sister, my friend, fill in the blank, who just seems to never be bothered. But it's not that we're doing something wrong. It's actually that something around us is probably wrong and we're having a normal response to it. We got to slow down and pay attention. Um, But then we also have to use the opportunity to role model for kids that the feelings are normal. The feelings aren't the issue. It's often what we do with them or don't do with them. But the feelings are normal, right? That's a part of being a human. And so we want to help kids understand in these everyday conversations that all feelings are okay. I say this because we probably have all heard it. Oh, well, anger is bad or negative. I am of the mindset there are not good and bad feelings. There are not positive and negative feelings. Our feelings just are. We're the ones who label them. And that causes shame. It causes unnecessary layers to the already complex feelings. So we teach kids that it's okay to talk about. And then what do we do with it? We got to role model by doing. So sometimes that means doing less, not more. This is something almost every person I've ever worked with is struggling with. How do I listen to what I need and actually do it? Mm. How do we know that it's okay to say no and that no is a full sentence? We do not need to justify saying no. So again, sometimes we feel anxiety and think, well, I should just be doing this better. But what if the anxiety is actually telling us, stop, stop what you're doing. It's not working. You might need to say, hey guys, we as a family, we've got too much going on. We're actually going to sit this one out. Instead of figuring out how can we do it and okay, maybe if we get here an hour earlier and we bring this with us. If that works for you, great. But if you're still feeling really revved up, that might be a sign that you actually just need to sit it out. That is such good advice. I feel like we all need that permission to say, we don't have to go to every birthday party. We don't have to sign up for every school event. We don't have to have our kids do every sporting event that they want to. There have to be limits. So let's talk about some more of these tangible limits we can put into place. Are there other things that we should maybe be limiting? Is there a social detox that we should be taking or turning off the news? What things can we take out of our lives to simplify and easing? anxiety. 
the challenge with that question is it's just so individual. <laughs> you know, people have talked a lot throughout the pandemic about the news and media. And I think you just really have to keep a pulse on how you're feeling. Now, if you have the constant alerts on your phone, they're coming up every few minutes and you're noticing when they're happening, you feel your heart rate increase. You're feeling revved up. Listen to the clues. You might need to set some very hard limits, but it's hard because everybody does respond so differently. We all have different stress responses. So that might not bother some people. So it's really about just figuring out what are those signs that something isn't jiving well with you and then putting things into place. Now, I will say across the board, something we all struggle with is prioritizing those things that we know are important, but we often push to the side when we're busy. For instance, sleep. <laughs> we know sleep is so important, but why is that one of the first things to go when we're stressed? Oh, I only slept five hours last night and three the night before. I'm just so busy. Gosh, that's backwards, isn't it? It's what we need to actually be able to be even keeled, regulate our emotions, think clearly, physical activity, just moving, moving our bodies. That's another thing that goes out the window. Sometimes when we're stressed, it's like, oh, and I don't have time to do that. But those are the things we so badly need. Sometimes it's limiting certain things, but it's also what can we gain by really prioritizing the things that we so desperately need. And all of these things that you're talking about for parents to ease their anxiety, I feel like really applies to children as well. I've noticed, you know, if I have the screen on too long, the TV on too long, then it's hard for my son to come off of that and get back into his regular even keeledness. And so identifying some of the things that are triggers for our kids to make them more anxious and maybe keeping them away from that. I have some questions from social media, Jody, that people have written in. They want your expertise, so I want to get to some of these. We have someone asking, any tips for kids who experience performance anxiety before the start of every sports season? This is super common. And I, I think, again, I'm sure there are, you're hearing a lot of themes in what I'm saying, and there's a reason. It's so individual. So on the surface, we hear performance anxiety and we immediately go somewhere in our brains. However, we have to get curious about what's really underneath it. I say that because it's not always what we think. For some kids, it might be what we expect that they um, are nervous about failing. And sometimes that's very much the case. Sometimes, again, those narratives exist in their head that I have to be perfect. And if I am not perfect, I am nothing. That's suffocating. I mean, that's debilitating. We have to help those kids understand the sweet spot again. I can try hard and I have to accept I'm not going to be perfect. There is that acceptance piece of knowing I am a human. And this is where self-compassion is really helpful for all of us, but for kids to learn at a young age in particular. Self-compassion is really this idea of I'm going to look at myself with kindness rather than judgment. I can feel my emotions and not get stuck at them. And also the sense of shared humanity, if you will, which is kind of acknowledging we are all flawed humans. We are all doing our best. I'm not failing. I am not different than everybody else. And so that's helpful for kids to learn. But also sometimes performance anxiety can be a sign of something else going on. Some kids will say that they don't actually want to do this particular sport 
but they feel like they have to. Maybe they've been doing it for years since they were little, and it feels like such a part of their identity. They don't know what to do without it. They don't know who they are without it. Or they might feel like they're disappointing an adult in their life. So they're scared to tell them, I don't actually enjoy this. We have to have a conversation. We've got to open it up and be very curious and give kids the space to tell us what it is that they're feeling. We don't want to make the assumptions because we really might go down the wrong path. And then when we do that, we might teach them just not to talk about it because they might think, ah, they don't really get it. Or maybe I should be feeling what they said I should be feeling and what I'm feeling is wrong. Yeah. And giving them that space, that's a theme I'm hearing as well. We talked about recognizing anxiety, some of those telltale signs, but I love this question that a follower sent in. Are there telltale signs we should watch for when kids are really good at hiding their anxiety? Oh, I love that question because it's um, everybody's fears. How will I know if they don't tell me? You know your kid though, and I I want to remind people of that. You know your kids really well. Pay attention. There often will be a big shift if all of a sudden something's happened, even if they're not telling you. You might notice that they're withdrawing. They're tearful. They're kind of fidgety. They're struggling to make eye contact. Or maybe they're really irritable. And all of a sudden, you just notice they're kind of extra sassy. They're cranky. Maybe they're avoiding stuff they used to really love. And all of a sudden, you notice they're not hanging out with those friends or they're trying to procrastinate and not get on the bus. So there's some signs that things are going on. What I think is important here is, again, acknowledging that when we feel anxious, we all operate differently. When our brain perceives a threat, we go into these automatic responses which are going to be different for each situation. So sometimes we feel a threat and we go into hyperproductivity mode. So I'm feeling anxious. What do I do? I'm actually going to overperform. I'm going to become a busy bee. I'm going to have my hands in everything. So on the surface, nobody knows because I'm just staying so busy. I look fine. But for this kid, they are exhausted from putting on the face and physically doing all the things. Now, for other kids, it could look very different. So they might hide their anxiety by being controlling. Sometimes people will say to me, well, that's just a controlling person. I don't know about that. I think sometimes controlling is, it's a way to protect our own sense of safety. So if our body is feeling a threat, sometimes we go into control mode to try to maintain the peace. Another big one to watch out for, I've noticed a lot, is people-pleasing. So on the surface, this might not be a concern. We might think, gosh, I have done a great job raising a really polite young child. However, this can be masking anxiety in a big way because sometimes when kids feel anxiety, and adults too, we often do this, we go into this people-pleasing mode. And the idea behind it is, I'm feeling some kind of threat But if I please everybody else around me, everything will stay calm and I will feel safe. The problem, as you can imagine, is it's never ending. We're just constantly trying to please. We're bending over backwards, trying to please everybody else. But it doesn't actually make us feel safer. So we just keep doing more to the point where kids and adults alike completely lose their sense of self. If you ask them how they feel or what they need, they don't even know how to answer because they've gotten so used to pleasing everybody else. 
Ashton, you wouldn't think that, right? You just think they've got great manners. I've done my job. What a great, great warning to families to pay attention to that. Finally, this last question from a follower, any tips on growing a child's confidence? I feel like a confidence boost would really help my daughter manage her anxiety. We've talked a little bit about the brain and the body, but I think it's important to just kind of recognize there's essentially this feedback loop that can go on. And when we start to feel anxious, for instance, we start thinking some thoughts that create more anxiety and then more tension builds up in the body. And the more that tension builds up in the body, it goes to the brain. So we've got to kind of go at it from both ways. First of all, I think it's helpful to teach kids from a young age strategies they can use to regulate or calm their body. Because when you calm the body, the brain will follow. So teaching kids these tangible strategies they can use whenever they're feeling anxious, like deep breathing. I know that seems overly simple, but we're, we don't do that in our day-to-day breathing. It so works. It works. <laughs> right. I've done this. Yes. Yes. And you can teach kids from a very young age. You can make it super fun, have them lie on the floor, put a stuffed animal on their belly and have them watch it rise and fall with each breath. Use bubbles, use feathers, incorporate it into play, but teach them from a young age how to pay attention to their body and how to calm it. That's number one. Number two is we got to go back to the brain because those beliefs and those narratives are going to fuel that feeling we have. So if we're feeling insecure, we're lacking confidence, we got to go to what's happening in the brain. Now, often what happens in the brain when we are feeling stressed is it gets a little bit distorted. So sometimes, and we know this even as adults, our sense of reality is not quite aligned with what's going on in our brain and in the world around us. I'll give you a prime example. So a young kid might get great grades in school, and then all of a sudden they have a slight hiccup on a quiz. They don't fail, but maybe they don't get a great grade. The brain loves to focus on that and completely ignore all the grades that they got before that. So what happens is we really magnify that one perceived failure and we really minimize all of our successes. And that's why it's distorted. So what we want to do is help kids understand that they have control over their thoughts. First of all, recognize our thoughts are not facts. And that's important and super empowering for kids. Just because I'm thinking it doesn't mean it's real. So what do we do? We identify, what is it that I'm thinking? I'm not very good at this. Okay, that's the thought. Now let's check it a little bit. Is it helpful? Probably not. Is it accurate? We're going to find out. So let's start poking holes in it. Where is the evidence to support that? So that kid who is not confident, okay, maybe they're not confident about school. So let's start to look for some evidence. Do you do well in school? Well, yeah, I get good grades. Okay, great. Do you stay on top of your studies and meet all your deadlines? Well, yeah, I guess so. So we're starting to gather evidence to poke holes in that thought that they had. And what we're doing is helping them create a new narrative. And it's not going to the other extreme from I'm a terrible student to I'm the best student that ever existed. But it's finding this middle ground, which is based in reality, which says, I am doing my best. I'm a pretty good student. And sometimes I'm not going to get an A. And that doesn't make me a failure. Failing is a part of life. It doesn't define me. 
We really have to help kids with these narratives, the self-talk that they have, because what they have now will stay with them. And we want to help them see that our feelings are going to come and go. They're totally normal. But how we respond to them and the way that we see ourselves in the world is up to us. And we can choose to focus on these perceived failures or we can have a broader view. Who am I in the world? And yes, I am capable of navigating all of life's ups and downs. I am resilient. And that doesn't mean I'm perfect. And it doesn't mean I won't fail. And also with the confidence, sometimes I'm not going to feel confident. Let's just call that what it is. We cannot create little robots who don't have feelings. We don't want to. Sometimes they're not going to feel confident. That's okay. And also they can learn from it and figure out, okay, maybe is there something I could have done to prepare, which would have made me more confident? Or is it just a matter of changing my mindset and realizing I'm all right, I can do this and that will make me feel more confident. Jody, I feel like this is such incredible information that today parents can walk away and say, I have resources. I have things that I can do to help my children and myself through these really challenging times. Thank you for being with me. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. I want to thank Jody from the Children's Strong for Life team for joining today. As the prevention arm of Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Strong for Life is backed by children's doctors, therapists, nurses, registered dietitians, and other wellness experts who team up to create resources to help busy families raise healthy, safe, resilient kids. For more on this episode, our podcast content, and easy to find links to Strong for Life resources to help you manage anxiety in your family, visit choa.com. Org slash podcasts. That's C-H-O-A dot org slash podcasts. I'm Lynn Smith, and this has been Hope and Will, a parenting podcast from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only. It is not to be considered medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgments when making recommendations for their patients. Patients in need of medical or behavioral advice should consult their family health care providers.